4. Ezra chapter 4 as we continue uh, our trek through the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, we find ourselves this morning in chapter 4. The people of Israel are in the midst of attempting to rebuild the temple as they've resettled back into the land of Judah and they have gathered uh, at the city Jerusalem and they are uh, they are ready, and they have uh, laid the foundation in chapter 3. And we get to chapter 4, and there seem to be some challenges to their work in building and rebuilding the temple. And so this morning, I want us to see this passage as challenges to our faith and walk through this passage and see how God teaches His people and is using these situations and circumstances in their life to instruct them, to guide them, to, um, to teach them about himself and about depending upon him. And so this morning, as we uh, prepare to, uh, to read and to study God's word, let us pray. Father, we come before you. And Lord, we thank you that you are with us. We thank you, Father, that you are always with your people. That you never leave us, you don't forsake us, but God, that you walk with us. That your eye is all-seeing, that you are ever looking out and watching over your children. And Lord, we thank you for that. We praise you for that, Father. And Lord, as we open your word this morning, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would illumine our minds to understand the truth of your word. And Lord, that you would open our hearts to love the truth of your word. God, I pray that you would make each of us aware of your presence here this morning as we study and read and hear and interact with your word this morning. And so, Lord, we praise you. We thank you for allowing us to be here today and we worship you. It's in Jesus name that we pray. Amen. If you found your place in Ezra chapter four, say amen. <clears throat> and let's begin reading in verses one through five. Now, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's households and said to them, Let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God, and we've been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's households of Israel said to them, you have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God. But we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now skip all the way to the end of the chapter, to verse 24. Verse 24 picks up where verse 5 leaves off and says, Then work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased, and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So what has happened is the people of God have been working and rebuilding the temple, or laying the foundation, and then the people of God have gotten discouraged and even have become frightened by the people of the land. 
And so the people of the land now have come around and began saying things and frustrating their counsel and doing things intentionally to discourage them and frighten them from accomplishing the work that God has called them to do. And so it is that in in Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, and then verse 24, in these six verses... These six verses cover the span of about 16 or 15 or 16 years. And really, in the book of Ezra, this is all we have to account for those 15 or 16 years. These six verses telling us of this extended period of time. When the beginning and the laying of the foundation of temple about 535, 536 or 535 B.C. to this time of 520 B.C. when the temple would be completed, as we'll see in chapter 5. It was about 15 or 16 years. And Ezra himself devotes about six verses to tell us of this time frame. But this morning, what I want us to see is I I want us to approach this passage from three different perspectives. If you're following in the outline there, I kind of gave you those three different perspectives through which we'll approach this passage. One being the modern perspective. This is the perspective with which we come to understand and apply this passage to ourselves and our current situation today. But in order to understand this perspective correctly, we must first correctly understand the other two perspectives. And so what we have here in Ezra is really kind of a story within a story. A story within a story. We have the contemporary to events perspective as well. The contemporary to events, as you might suppose, this is where the people as contemporary to the are are the contemporaries of the events that are being described. We see what they're walking through and we were able to reference Haggai and Zechariah and their ministries for contemporary details of what's happening in the life of the people of Israel at 520 B.C., which is about where verse 24 ends, about 520 B.C., And then we also have one other perspective. That other perspective is the perspective of being contemporary to the narrative. Contemporary to the narrative. That is to those who are living at the time that Ezra is being written. So three different perspectives there. There's today, but first, in order to understand how this applies today, of course, we have to understand how it applied then And so I'd like to begin, I want us to begin this morning with this per- third perspective. This third perspective is directed toward the people of Israel living in the restored community. So just to kind of set the context for us, they, they've resettled in the territory of Judah. The temple has been reconstructed and the walls in the city of Jerusalem have been rebuilt. Because the letter of Ezra Nehemiah, Nehemiah remember it was one in the beginning... It, hasn't, uh, it wasn't written at the time that these events are taking place. It was written after to the people of God who had been resettled there in Judah and Jerusalem. And so now what I'd like us to do is I'd like us to go from verses 6 through 23 and see this parenthesis that is placed in the context of chapter 4. And I'm going to ask Pastor Kevin if he'll come up and help us out this time. We'll do something a little different this morning. So verse 6 and verse 7 detail for us two different letters that were written to the king at the time in order to try to dissuade or impede the progress of the people of Israel. So Pastor Kevin is going to start in verse 8. 
Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rehum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Iraq, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Asnapar deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes, the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now, be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now, because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king. In order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, you will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why this city was laid waste. We make it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. So in verses 8 through 16, we have this third letter that goes right to, uh, to the king. Thank you, Pastor Kevin. And this third letter, as it goes to the king, it finally gets the king's attention. And so the king then does a search into the, uh, into the records, and then he writes this letter in response in verse 17. And so verse 17 through 23 is the responding letter of Artaxerxes back to the leaders of the people of the land, the people of Samaria. And he said this, Then the king sent an answer to Rehum, the commander, to Shimshai, the scribe, to the rest of their colleagues who live in Samaria and the rest of the provinces beyond the river, peace and now. The document which you sent to us has been translated and read before me. A decree has been issued uh, by me and a search has been made and it has been discovered that the city has risen up against the kings in past days, that rebellion and revolt have been perpetrated in it. That mighty kings have ruled over Jerusalem, governing all the provinces beyond the river, and that tribute, custom, and toll were paid to them. So now issue a decree to make these men stop work, that this city may not be rebuilt until a decree is issued by me. Beware of being negligent in carrying out this matter. Why should damage increase to the detriment of kings? Then, as soon as the copy of King Artaxerxes' document was read before Rehum and Shimshai the scribe and their colleagues, they went in haste to Jerusalem to the Jews and stopped them by force of arms. Okay, so here's what's, here's what's going on. First off, let me say this is one of the reasons why Ezra Nehemiah is not considered a historical book that 
So, so when you read through Old Testament historicity and, and try to see the historical references and books of, of Old Testament, you won't see Ezra and Nehemiah listed among them. And one of the reasons is because of passages like this that are scattered kind of throughout it. It doesn't seem to fit in with the logical sequence of events because it doesn't. One minute he's talking about 520 B.C. and the next minute he's talking about 458 B.C. And so in this letter, what we have in Ezra and Nehemiah is a theological work. It's intended to teach God's people about himself and how he is at work in their midst. And so the current text of of chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 and and verse 24, describe these events, as we said, of 520 B.C. But verses 6 through 23 give us kind of a, a future snapshot from 458 where Ezra returns with the second wave of exiles going back into the land to about 445 where Nehemiah comes and arrives on the scene and the rebuilding of the walls is occurring. And so verse 23 where it says that they went and they stopped the work and they stopped him by force of arms is probably referencing Nehemiah 1:3. That's where it kind of jumps ahead to in the work. And although this jumping ahead and the storyline seems out of place, it, it shows other ways, and that's the point, it's showing other ways that the people of the land were discouraging the Jews from rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. Not only had they been discouraging them from coming back into the land, they were discouraging them from rebuilding the temple, then they were also discouraging them from rebuilding the city and, and rebuilding the walls and putting the walls around the city. Why is that significant? Well, it's significant because it, pro- it produced great challenges to their faith. We know all of this for a few reasons. To set this in the right context, verse 6 gives us the name of one king named Ahasuerus. In verse 6, this king, we, we know this king reigned from 485 to 465 B.C., He's also known as King Xerxes. It's the Greek form of the name. But then in verse 7, the second letter introduces the next king. The next king's name was Artaxerxes. He was Artaxerxes I. And we know from history that he reigned from 464 to 423. And he was probably the king during Ezra's coming in in Ezra chapter 7. And probably was the king that reigned from the time of Ezra chapter 7 all the way to the end of the book of Nehemiah. Then verse 8 where Aramaic begins in the text. The Verse 8 is the third letter that it's written and, and it's what we just read. It was the third complaint, this complaint which succeeded in reaching the attention of the king. Verses 11 and 12 are the charges. I'm sorry, verses 11 and 12 speak of the Jews who came up from you. That's the group that Ezra led, the exiles. That's around 458 B.C. And then verses 11 and uh, 13 through 16 issue the charge that they leveled against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. These were people who would eventually have tax evasion and and they would take over the province beyond the river and and take uh, from all the people and you would no longer have control over them. And as we said, verses 17 through 22, that's King Artaxerxes' response to stop the work. Now, the goal this morning is not to give us a history lesson and just to run through all of these dates, but... It's to try to set this in the context of what's really happening for this people 
What's really happening for them is they have moved back in. They've, they've been following God. They've moved back in and they've resettled in the land. And they're going through these very real things, very real uh, steps to try to rebuild and reestablish their worship, to try to rebuild their lives. And last week we kind of likened it to Hurricane Katrina and the many people that were forced out and then came back and descended back on New Orleans to begin rebuilding their lives. I mean, these are real things that are happening in the lives of these people. One thing that we should note that the contemporary audience of the book of Ezra, Nehemiah, about them, that they're a people that are living in, in, in Judah and Jerusalem anywhere from the time of 433 to possibly 300 B.C. The date of the final work of Ezra is not specifically known, but one of the certainties is that it was written after all of the events occurred and after they had already moved, after the, uh, the, the temple reconstructed, the city had been rebuilt and the walls had been uh, reframed. It was then that the letter was penned, sometime after that. And so it was written conservatively 100 years after the rebuilding of the temple, if the rebuilding of the temple happened in 520 and finished in 516, and then the rebuilding of the city was finished later, and then we get to um, a, a hundred years after that, where 433 possibly is the time of the writing or the authorship of the book of Ezra Nehemiah. But there's also the possibility that it was as late as 300 B.C. Which would mean it would be right in the midst of the Hellenization of the people of Israel, the Greek, uh, Alexander the Great, coming in and, uh, and, and spreading the, uh, the Greek language and the Greek culture throughout. One of the other things we see is if it was about 420 B.C. that it was written, 430 B.C. that it was written. This is about 100 years also after the ministry of Haggai and Zechariah. And so we know this. The people of Israel were walking through a difficult time. They were walking through a process of being reshaped. And the pervasive thought of the people was we're supposed to be the chosen people of God. We're supposed to be a nation set apart for his glory. And they were, but they needed to learn to divorce themselves from the idea that political autonomy was synonymous with God's sovereign power and his authority. Since the days of Exodus, Israel had been politically autonomous as a nation. That is, they had not been subjected to foreign rulers. They had not had any other king other than the one that they wanted over them. But since the days of the Exodus, they would no longer, or since the days of being brought in Babylonian captivity, they would no longer be one who had their own power and own authority. They would no longer be one who was politically autonomous. In fact, it wasn't until 1948 that Israel regained their political autonomy as a nation. I mean, we're talking about a long, from 580 B.C., 590 B.C. to 1948, there was this time where Israel was not politically autonomous as a nation. Haggai and Zechariah both prophesied concerning this one named Zerubbabel. This one Zerubbabel that we see in Ezra here, 
Zerubbabel would be the signet ring of the Lord. At least that was the prophecy that Haggai and Zechariah had brought forth. And so in Haggai chapter 2, verse 20 through 23, write that down and, and go back and read later that prophecy that he gives concerning Zerubbabel. And then Zechariah chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 as well. The people of Israel understood this positively as a prophecy pointing to the reestablishment of the Davidic monarchy in conjunction with the rebuilding of the temple and the finishing and completing of the city and the walls. So that's what they're thinking is coming. And then a hundred years later, they realize that it wasn't the case. One hundred years later, after the ministry of Haggai and Zechariah, right? 420 B.C., they realized this is not the case. What happened in 520 to 516 B.C. with Haggai and Zechariah prophesying and prophesying and giving us this message, we must have misunderstood or, or their prophecy didn't come true because in 420 B.C., conservatively, when this letter was written, Zerubbabel was long gone. The Davidic monarchy had not been reestablished. They were not politically autonomous. They were still living in subjugation to foreign rulers. As the people of God, a holy nation set apart for God, they were left wondering and asking the question, what in the world is going on? They needed to have some answers, and they were looking for some answers. And I think this is one of the reasons that Ezra and Nehemiah is, is written. It's, it's this pastoral letter, but theological letter to, to teach God's people about the way that he is working. The letter was written as late as 300 B.C. The process of Hellenization was already underway. Alexander the Great had already implemented it in full swing. It forced Israel to wrestle with this difficult question. How are we to live faithfully as the covenant people of God while living in subjugation to foreign rule? That was the question that they were having to wrestle with that they had never had to wrestle with before. Since this hope of Zerubbabel had gone unrealized and they were left wondering how God would establish them as a people, they were asking questions like, who will be the political Messiah that will free us? It's a question we still see them asking in the gospel. Who is going to be this political Messiah to free us from Rome? It's the reason that the disciples misunderstood all of Jesus' words as he's trying to teach them of, of his reign and of his kingdom. Matthew captures the answer to this prophecy in chapter 1 of the Gospel of Matthew where he lists the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. And guess who shows up in the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah? Zerubbabel. In Matthew chapter 1, Beginning in verse, verse 12, after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtel, and Shealtel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor. Down to verse 16, where it leads to Jacob was the father of Joseph, husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. You see, the point that Haggai and Zechariah were making that it would be through Zerubbabel 
that it would be through the line of David that the kingdom of God would be established, but it was not like any kingdom that they thought it would be like. And so the people of Israel were in process learning to understand what God was doing in their midst. He was not to be the political Messiah, but he was to be the Messiah who would propitiate the sins of the people, one who would save the people from their sins. So what's the point then? What's the point of this parenthesis? The point of this parenthesis is to show the current people of Israel living after all of these events have taken place, right? It's to show the current people of Israel their need to be persistent and completely dependent upon God. Their discouragement and battle to reestablish themselves in the land of Judah had proven to be an arduous task. They would have to be vigilant in their faith walk, guarding against the schemes of Satan who would seek to distract and and impede the progress that the people of God were making. And in the midst of challenges to their faith, they were to call on God. The people of Israel would have to learn the tentative nature of their existence and that dependence on God was paramount to their survival. They would would have to learn to exercise spiritual muscles, so to speak, as they lived out their faith in the context of competing religions and competing worldviews. This new subjugation to foreign authority and power meant that the prophets and the priests were no longer consulted by the kings of the land. It hadn't been like this before. Before the prophets would come and they would anoint the kings, they would appoint kings, right? Samuel the prophet comes to Saul and anoints him as king. And then Samuel the prophet comes back, God's man, comes back to Samuel and says uh, to Saul and says, the kingdom has been ripped from your hands. And then he goes and the prophet Samuel anoints King David. And King David is the one who comes and becomes king. And then the prophet Nathan rises up and he comes and He speaks to David and says, you can't build the temple of God. Your son will. And then he comes to King David as well. And he confronts King David in in his sin with Bathsheba. You see, at this time, Israel doesn't know how to function in this way, in in subjugation to this new authority, to foreign rulers. Their priests had been the spiritual leaders of the nation. The kings had always looked to God for direction. And now they're having to learn how to live out their faith in a very real way, in a different culture, in a different context. In fact, if you look into the intertestamental time and do any study, it it reveals the great struggle the Jews face in the centuries to come. All their traditions derived from and determined by their laws, their ceremonial laws, the dietary restrictions, the ritual purity for worship, all these would be tested by the culture in which they lived. In so many ways, they had to redefine and and understand afresh what it meant to be a people of God among and to the nations. In fact, even the language of the Hebrew people would all but be forgotten shortly after 333 B.C., when Alexander the Great came in and defeated Assyria and he Hellenized all these defeated territories. Listen, by 250 B.C., the Pentateuch had to be translated into Greek. 
By 130 B.C., the Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible, also the Torah, known as the Torah. By 130 B.C., all the remaining books of the Old Testament had to be translated into Greek. And we have our Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint as a result. So here's the thing with the meshing of cultures. It was important for the people of God to remain pure in their worship of Yahweh. It was important for the people of God to remain pure in their living in obedience to God. Jesus summed up this teaching that really kind of is the heart of the Old Testament in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 37 through 40. When he said, love the Lord your God, here are the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And these were the two pillars upon which the people of Israel had been established. Worshiping God as the central component of life. Dealing with their relationship with God. And then worshiping God would impact how they lived obediently under the covenant and following God. You know, today... The people of God, the church, face a similar dilemma, don't we? We face a similar dilemma as the people of Israel. We seek to learn the balance between relationship to God and daily living for His glory within a culture that grows more distant from God. We, like the people of Israel, must exercise our spiritual muscles by wrestling with the implications of our faith walk in the Lord Jesus Christ. We must wrestle with our voice in the midst of a pagan culture and how it is to sound, what we are to say. You see, our worship of God must inform our daily living for God as well. We must pray through and wrestle with Issues, asking questions such as, what does living out our faith look like today? And asking questions like, are we to be vocal in the forming of laws and policies that govern our society? These are things that the people of Israel would have been struggling through as they walk into this new culture and go through this process. What does it mean to live for us today? What does it mean to live a distinctly Christ-centered life in the culture of America? How are we to share the gospel with our neighbors and with our co-workers? And in this pluralistic age where all things are relative, how do we engage people with the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because we'll be labeled intolerant, we'll be labeled uh, filled with hate speech or or narrow-minded. How do we speak to the sanctity of life? What's the best way for us to approach the abortion issue? Are we to stand among the protesters? Are we to to participate in in, in a peaceful march? Or should we open our homes as a a place of refuge for children who who have been orphaned, who are in foster care? Is God calling us to adopt the children who are unwanted by their mothers? How do we address euthanasia? How are we to speak to these issues of the day? Are we offering the hope of the gospel to people who have all but given up? 
They're just ready to die and be done. How are we to stand for the sanctity of, of marriage as one man and one woman while simultaneously reaching out to homosexual men and women and lovingly share the hope of redemption and the plan of God's design in marriage? How are we doing in engaging these issues in our culture? As Christians today, I'm convinced that how we answer these questions are some of the greatest challenges to our faith as the people of God. As we mesh with a culture that we live in, we are the people of God that give voice to the Word of God We are living out our faith and the way that we respond or speak to these issues is a direct correlation to the faith of God among His people and the people of God and our faith in God. How we answer these questions speaks about how we are living out the gospel. That's the huge implication. And so there were many challenges for the people of Israel as they navigated this new land and navigated living under subjugation to foreign power. There were many challenges that they walked through as they were adjusting to not having the prophet speaking for the king or to the king and not having the priest as so uh, visible in the forefront of life and leadership of the spiritual, spiritual leadership of the nation. When we get to verse 24, it says, Then the work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased, and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. It was the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia, when the temple work began to be rebuilt or finished. Verse 24 is the picking up point from verse 5. And in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, we see this contemporary to the event. I want us to see the contemporary to the events perspective. That is, the people as contemporary to the events being described. We see what they're walking through, right? We see in verses 4 and 5, then the people of the land were discouraged because what happened in 2 and 3, there was some interaction that happened in verses 2 and 3 where the people of Samaria approached Zerubbabel. And the heads of the father's households and said to them, let us build with you, for we like you, we seek your God and we've been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria. But what was known to Zerubbabel and what was known to Jeshua, priest, was that in 681, Esarhaddon began repopulating the territory of Samaria, the northern part of the kingdom. And if you look in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 24, you see an incredible story of what happened as these people came in and populated, repopulated the land. They were foreigners to the land. They weren't Jewish. They weren't Jews. They weren't the people of God. And so what began to happen was God sent lions into their midst and began destroying them. And so the people cried out to the king, and the king reestablished one of the priests of God back over the people to teach them how to live uh, by the, the decrees and the commands of the, la- uh, the God of the land. And so that Second Kings chapter 17, and that never really, uh, they, they never really were completely and wholly committed to God. In fact, the passage tells us that 
It was a syncretism of worship. Sometimes they worshipped the Lord God of Israel, but they also worshipped their own false gods. And so there was this meshing even then of different gods and kind of a polytheism of their worship. And so Zerubbabel and Jeshua knew this and they said, no, we we don't want your help to rebuild the temple. And then in verses four and five. That's when the people of the land began to discourage the people of Judah. They began to frighten them. And here's the thing, for the next 15 to 16 years, the people of Samaria would discourage the people of Judah For the next 15 to 16 years, they would hinder them from rebuilding the temple. And I want to hone in on a phrase here in verse 4 for us just to kind of camp out on for a moment. In verse 4, it says, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building. I want to highlight that word discouraged for us. It means literally to weaken the hands. The people of Samaria literally weakened the hands of the people of Judah. Over the next 15 to 16 years, the the people of Israel allowed the temple of God to lay dormant. And they simply went on with their lives. The book of Ezra, as we mentioned before, doesn't say much about this time other than these six verses. But the reality was the people of Israel were living defeated lives. They had fallen prey to the schemes of Satan. They had grown discouraged and frightened by the people of the land. And consequently, everything in their lives suffered. Hear that out. Everything suffered. You might ask, well, how do you know that? Remember, Haggai and Zechariah are contemporaries to this time of rebuilding in 520. So if if you want to kind of make an earmark there and and turn to Haggai and Zechariah and spend some time reading there this week to see what's happening for the people of Israel. But I just want to share with you from Haggai 1.4. He says, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Speaking of the temple. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. If you turn to Haggai 1 and you keep reading, he continues to go through uh, this rebuking of the people and calling them back to focus on the main thing and rebuilding the temple for the people uh, for God and the worship of God. And Haggai 2 5, here's what Haggai prophesies and says what the Lord says to his people, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst Fear not. It's a timely word spoken by Haggai to the people as they were being challenged in their faith for 15 years. Can you imagine being discouraged for that long from engaging and doing the work of the Lord? Being discouraged and frightened for that long of 
not engaging and and doing what you know that God had called you to do. The challenge to their faith was a formidable challenge. Their opponents were the people of the land. And as they as they submitted and as they allowed the people of the land to come and to discourage them, they grew more and more tired and more and more weary. That's the contemporary perspective for what's happening for the people of Israel. 15 to 16 years not knowing, or not being sure, be, being scared, being frightened, being discouraged. I, as I began meditating and um, studying this passage earlier on in the week, these verses, verses 4 and 5, caught my attention and I just began thinking and praying about this specific phrase, discourage the people of Judah, weaken the hands of the people of Judah. And I, I realized that their fear and discouragement hindered them from walking with the Lord. And if I could just bring us into a, 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 the modern perspective, how this applies to us today, all of what we said, how it applies to us today their fear and discouragement hindered them from walking with the Lord, I had to ask myself the very question, Nick, what, what is it, what are the things that discourage you? What is it that weakens your hands? And I began to meditate on that and ask God what it was in my life that was weakening my hands from walking with Him, insecurity, busyness, dwelling on my sin times when it becomes about more about me and less about others when I'm not walking in the power of the Holy Spirit or walking in my life submitted to the power of the Holy Spirit I could go on but I think you get the point I realize that when these things occur in my life my hands are weakened and I become ineffective in accomplishing the work of God's kingdom I become ineffective in accomplishing that which God has called me to. Listen, for 15 years it affected every area of their lives, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. It weakened their hands from carrying out the work of the Lord. I want to ask this morning, maybe there are some here who have noticed or who know that your hands have been weakened by the discouragement of others or by being frightened by others or being frightened maybe by the interaction with the culture and how to live out your faith. Or maybe there are some here this morning who, like the people of Israel, have been in bondage for quite some time to things that are weakening your hands from accomplishing and doing, engaging in the work of the Lord Maybe it's bitterness, maybe it's anger, maybe it's hatred, maybe it's habit, maybe it's busyness, maybe it's insecurity, I, I don't know. But is there something, church, believer, in our lives, is there something that is weakening our hands from engaging in the work of the Lord 
Listen, the only one who can fill you, fill me to accomplish the work of God is God himself. The only one who can strengthen us to accomplish and and do his will is God himself. And if there are things in our lives that are weakening our hands from accomplishing the work of God, I want to encourage us this morning to lay those things down I want to close this morning by asking the question I ask of us on the first Sunday that we began Ezra. And that question is, believer, what is God stirring your spirit to do? What is God stirring your spirit to do? And is there something that is discouraging you, that is weakening your hands from carrying out that which God has placed upon your heart? your desire to do. Let us pray. Father, as we come before you, I pray that you would take this your word and Lord, that you would use it to encourage us, that you would use it to speak into our lives and to challenge us. Father, I pray that you would, by your grace, help us, Lord, to confess these things before you. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us to live for you. Strengthen us, Lord, to come and to depend upon you in the midst of the things that challenge our faith. Help us, God, to wrestle with how we are to live out our faith in the midst of the culture that we are in. Help us, Lord, to know how to give the the response that is both loving and truthful. Make us sensitive, Lord Jesus, to your Holy Spirit's leading. And I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us this morning to respond as you are leading. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I want to invite you to stand.